Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. It's Friday morning, October 13, about 8.30 in the morning in our nation's capital. And time for this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod, where we look back at the big news of the week with three top political reporters. And this week, it was, for the most part, war. War on two fronts. A violent, bloody war in the Middle East after Hamas terrorists attacked Israel, in response to which Israel's declared war against Hamas. And while the world is on fire back here at home, the house is on fire. A less bloody but intensely uncivil civil war inside the House Republican caucus over who will be the next Speaker of the House. First, they threw Kevin McCarthy out of the job. Then they nominated Steve Scalise to take his place, only to force him out of the job before he could even be elected. The result is pure chaos indeed. There's a serious question about whether anybody could lead this caucus. So what are we going to make of it all? Well, let's find out from today's panel. Sabrina Siddiqui joining us back on the Bill Press Pod, White House reporter for Wall, the Wall Street Journal. Hello, Sabrina. Good morning. Welcome back. Amanda Becker back with us again, too, Washington correspondent for 19th News. Hello, Amanda. Hello. Okay. And joining us for, he's been on the podcast before, his first appearance on our Reporters Roundtable, Brian Boitler, who is author of the brand new a newsletter called Off Message on Substack. I've subscribed, and I hope you guys will too. Hello, Brian. It's great to be with you, Bill. Okay, let's start out. Uh, Sabrina, I want to ask you the same question, believe it or not, that I ask the very first question I asked on last week's roundtable, which is this. Who is the Speaker of the House of Representatives? Donald Trump? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know who the Speaker of the House of Representatives is or going to be. Obviously, uh, Steve Scalise has uh, withdrawn uh, from the nomination after failing to secure enough support. Um, look, House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan narrowly lost the nomination to Scalise, so I think he could now contest the nomination again. But, you know, you, you see the deep divisions within uh, the Republican conference. It's hard to imagine who would get a sufficient number of votes. Um, we saw how many times it took McCarthy. So I guess you could say Scalise didn't want to incur the humiliation of, you know, what was it, 15, 16 votes that it took to confirm McCarthy. Uh, but I, I look, I think, um, you know, the, the, what's more important to highlight is also how precarious of a moment this is. You know, we're, we're going to talk about, uh, you know, the war in the Middle East, um, obviously funding for the government that's due to lapse in, in, a, in a handful of weeks. Um, it's not like there's much to get done, Bill. 
uh, while yeah, right. House Republicans are continuing to spiral into chaos. Well, um, so Amanda, here I want to I want to play a little clip from Steve Scalise when he surprised all of us, I think, by bowing out uh, last evening. Um, but you know, he did um, he did beat Jim Jordan, not by much. He became the nominee, uh, and then he couldn't get from 113 to 217. Here is his statement last night. I just share with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the speaker designee. Our conference still has to come together and is not there. Uh, there are still some people that have their own agendas. And I was very clear, we have to have everybody put their agendas on the side and focus on what this country needs. This country is counting on us to come back together. So, uh, so Amanda, what I'm wondering is, where was Kevin McCarthy all this? Didn't Kevin McCarthy, in fact, stab Steve Scalise in the back? A little bit. And where is he now? I mean, I think this is all kind of indicative of in this Congress, ever since, um, you know, Republicans took back over, they seemingly have been unable to count votes accurately. Um, McCarthy struggled. Like, why would you ever go through that process back in January if you didn't know what the outcome was going to be? As Sabrina said, it took 15 or 16 rounds. All of us forget at this point it was so many. Um, and I think maybe Scalise just didn't want to go through that again with this initial, you know, showing that it was going to be another brutal path to try and become speaker. Um, I think probably what summed it up the best for me, and I'm, I'm looking at my own Twitter right now because I retweeted it last night. Representative Mike Collins, a Republican from Georgia, uh, said last night, we should just have a lottery. If you lose, you have to be speaker. And I think that that's kind of where the Republican House Conference is right now. Who would want this job? Uh, Brian, who would want this job? And could anybody do this job? Is this a is this a caucus that's at all unitable or governable? Uh, I'd echo Sabrina and say that uh, Donald Trump seems to kind of want the job. Uh, Jim Jordan... <laughs> yeah. Claims to want the job, even though he lost in the in the conference vote over who should be the speaker designee. Um, but I think what you're seeing is a is a real breakdown, and it I almost want to call it a norm, but it's more like just what the what the basic definition of a party caucus is is that you know even even when you have a narrow majority like Republicans do now, a caucus is supposed to get together, make a decision based on basically an internal tally of votes. And then the caucus moves forward together based on that decision. And obviously, if you have a bigger majority, that means more people can dissent, right? If it comes to the floor on a vote for speaker, or on a vote for a bill, if you have a big majority, a bunch of people can vote against the caucus position. Um, but for something like a speaker, it's supposed to be pretty straightforward. Whoever yeah. wins the most votes in caucus gets 218 on the floor. That's how Nancy Pelosi became speaker in, in 2021, despite having a very narrow Majority, and there were plenty of Democrats who had misgivings about her be being speaker again, but they ultimately realized that that's how a caucus works. And so they had to set those aside, negotiate terms in order to get to yes. And Republicans are basically revealing that that has broken down in their process entirely. There are enough Republicans who are willing to throw basic legislative functioning out the window uh, in order to make the majority ungovernable. And it's hard to see how they get it together, but they also seem unwilling to team up with mm -hmm. even a small number of Democrats to, to either change the rules or 
elevate a, a Republican speaker who wouldn't govern the House in a in a um, in a overly partisan way. So right. it's unclear how the situation resolves in either direction. Uh, and they're going to be meeting, at least at this point, scheduled a meeting later today. Of course, um, it is Friday the 13th, so <laughs> <laughs> that may not be a very lucky moment for them. Sabrina, I'm going to come back to a point uh, uh, that you, you touched on. Um, and first, here is Michael McCall, who um, congressman from Texas, uh, chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, pointing out that um, th this is a problem beyond just the House of Representatives. Every day that goes by, it gets more dangerous. You know, I was on the phone with our friends from Israel. They're going to need a, a supplemental, an aid for, to replenish the Iron Dome. But they can't do that if we don't have a speaker in the chair. So I see a lot of threats out there. But one of the biggest threats I see is in that room. Uh, indeed, Sabrina, this has implications far beyond Capitol Hill. Absolutely. And this is coming at a time when the Biden administration is trying to put together some kind of aid package for Israel that I think would be, at least so far, according to aides I've spoken to, potentially part of um, a broader package that would also include aid for Ukraine, as well as funding for Taiwan, possibly also money for the border. And, and so, you know, you have a very complex aid package that the administration is trying to get through so that it could uh, swiftly not just deliver financial and military support to, you, to, um, to Israel in the wake of these Hamas terrorist attacks, but also remember the uh, short-term continuing resolution that uh, prevented a government shutdown uh, on, on September 30th or October 1st, I should say, didn't yeah. have funding for Ukraine. So mm -hmm. we do have... That other war that, you know, people may have uh, momentarily forgotten about. But I think ultimately, you know, it's it's hard to see how they get to a consensus, especially with, uh, you know, Donald Trump, the de facto leader of the party, still kind of calling the shots and just sitting there and watching as the party implodes. Um, I mean, don't forget that what happened in the run up to uh, Scalise having uh, lost uh, some of the support um, was Trump uh, raising serious concerns about Scalise's cancer diagnosis yeah. and saying he focus on his health, which prompted some uh, Republican lawmakers to actually say they were no longer supporting Scalise. So that's the dynamic that is unfolding, um, you know, within the Republican party. It's hard to see again, going back to going, coming full circle, who would potentially get enough support um, and re really who passes muster for Trump, who ultimately is the one calling the shots. Right. So um, another person is uh, sitting, uh, well, not so far away on the sidelines, but watching all of this, and in fact spoke out last night on uh, PBS NewsHour about a possible way out of this mess, and I'm talking about the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, here he is with a, an interesting kind of tease. That's why it's so urgently necessary that the Republicans elect the Speaker or have traditional Republicans break with the extremists and partner with Democrats. I know there are traditional Republicans who are good women and men who want to see government function, but they are unable to do it within the ranks of their own conference, which is dominated by the extremist wing. And that's why we continue to extend the hand of bipartisanship to them. Whoa, a Republican who would seek Democratic support and lead in a bipartisan manner is that could that really be in the cards amanda 
I mean, you'd like to think so just for, you know, the the future functioning of government. Um, I have anticipated from the beginning of the actual, you know, appropriations fight um, to fund the government that McCarthy really would have no other choice except to partner with Democrats on that because of this extreme faction within his own conference. I think now that, you know, that has led to his ouster and we are trying to find a replacement um, potentially the same dynamic exists. I mean, look at the meetings that Republicans have had over the past week to 10 days. Um, it doesn't seem like they've made any progress in terms of reaching a consensus of someone in their own party. Um, I It may very well be the case that they need Democrats to get this over the finish line. And you hear them already from the beginning saying, you know, we need Democrats to help bail us out of this, essentially. But what I have yet to see is them start to coalesce around a candidate that would be attractive to Democrats. Um, you know, I've heard Tom Cole's name floated by by the Democrats in the House as somebody that they might be able to get behind. Um, you know, I don't think that it's reasonable to expect Democrats to help you elect someone that they find to be unacceptable. And I think that, you know, the reality is they do probably need to work with Democrats and they're going to have to figure out somebody who can, you know, get support from that side. Okay. Uh, well, Brian, here's somebody who might be acceptable to Democrats, according to one member of Congress. Uh, you probably, you might've seen this clip, but Nancy Mace uh, appeared with um, Jake Tapper uh, on CNN uh, yesterday. Uh, and she's got a suggestion for the unity candidate. Uh, get your take, but first, let's listen to this little exchange. Who are some of the other possible uh, individuals who you think maybe could get to 217? Well, I think Jim Jordan is not out of the mix. I've talked to a lot of people who still support him. I've actually talked to Democrats who, who trust him at his word. I, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. Jim Jordan? I Yes, I've talked to Democrats over the last week on who do they trust, even though they wouldn't agree with him on many issues. He is someone the Jim can... Jordan from Ohio. Oh yes, the Jim Jordan from Ohio. Democrats people... in Congress. Yes, they can work with him. And those that name I one to. Democrat from Congress that trusts name Jim Jordan. People off the record. <laughs> Brian, Jim Jordan <laughs> from Ohio. Well, she's... <laughs> she's making up the part that that any Democrat would vote for Jim Jordan. Um, Nancy Mace has had an interesting trajectory because she, her district and her politics yeah. require her to, to, you know, express moderation from time to time. But she's also that, that put her at loggerheads with Donald Trump. Donald Trump threw her under the bus. She went and tried to chase his support back down. And that may be part of why she was part of the faction that deposed Kevin McCarthy in the first place. And that meant that I think she also felt she couldn't support McCarthy's deputy, Steve Scalise. Um, and 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 uh, <laughs> you can only sort of figure her support for Jim Jordan over Scalise as part of that weird drama where she's trying to regain favor with with Donald Trump. Um, but no, I, I, Jim Jordan is not going to get any Democratic votes. I think that getting Democratic votes would require a couple things. One is to pull somebody um, out who, who isn't already part of the Republican leadership establishment. Amanda mm -hmm. mentioned Tom Cole. That's that's one idea in the whatever's left of the problem solvers caucus. You might find a Republican that some Democrats would vote for, um, or it would have to be. In, uh, it, this would be a much less likely scenario. A, a Democrat from that um, from that universe of of problem solvers who isn't part of the the party leadership. But I think you have to you have to look outside of of the ranks 
of either party's leadership. You know, like the Scalise or Jim Jordan through his connection to Donald Trump is not going to be speaker. And I think there's also no chance that anyone from the Democratic leadership would become speaker. Plus, I think the other thing is that you're going to see is that the Republicans would have to be willing to give up, right? There'd be a price for getting a Democrat support. Um, and part of that price might be dropping, would be probably dropping impeachment hearings. Right. The other half is Hakeem Jeffries has laid out his terms. He's done so, so sort of vaguely, but he's essentially asked for changes to the rules that would make it easier for Democrats to force votes on legislation on the House floor if they have bipartisan support. So this would be a backdoor way for Democrats to make the agenda in the lead up to the election about things like um, abortion bans or um, or or um, like the, the PRO Act, which is a uh, labor rights legislation um, that has bipartisan support. If 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 Democrats could uh, could get that rule change locked in, it would give them some agenda setting power before 2024. And you can understand why Republicans wouldn't want that. Right. Still, the idea of a Democratic and Republican agreement and uh, uh, coming together for in, in back of a new speaker is a very, very, very remote possibility. Let's uh, keep that in context. Uh, and with that, let's shift to the other big war that has dominated the news after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod on today's Reporters Roundtable. Uh, quick break, and then we'll be back with today's panel. Brian Beutler from Off Message, Amanda Becker from 19th News, Sabrina Siddiqui from The Wall Street Journal. And today's Reporters Roundtable is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, the great men and women of the AFT, the second largest labor union in this country. Now um, they've got some 3,000 locals nationwide representing over 1.7 million teachers. Uh, those who are doing the Lord's work, as I say, on, in preschool, K through 12, higher education, in the classroom every day, giving our uh, kids uh, and the children of America the best education possible. We salute the members of the AFT Thank them for their great work and thank them for their support, longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. 
visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. And we're back today on this uh, Friday, October 13, the Bill Press Pod, and today's Reporters Roundtable. Uh, joining us on our panel, Brian Beutler is author of the brand new newsletter sub on Substack called Off Message, ready for you to subscribe. Amanda Becker, Washington correspondent for the 19th for 19th News, and Sabrina Siddiqui, White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal. It was just about uh, almost a week ago that terrorists from Hamas in the surprise attack on Israel, a very violent, bloody attack, leaving over 1,000 dead in Israel and uh, triggering a declaration of war by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu against Hamas, the ground war just about to begin. Uh, President Biden speaking up very strongly, putting the United States on the side of Israel. Here is the president. This attack was a campaign of pure cruelty, not, not just hate, but pure cruelty against the Jewish people. And I would argue it's the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. One of the worst chapters in human history that remind us all that, that expression I learned from my dad early on, silence is complicity. And I want you to know, I think you've already figured it out, I refuse to be silent. I know you refuse to be silent as well. The president made those remarks in a meeting with Jewish leaders at the White House. Amanda uh, foreign policy often becomes a test uh, it has for just about every president. This is a test for President Biden. Um, how do we think he's doing so far? I think it's probably too early to really assess how he's doing. I mean, this is all so fresh. Um, and as we have already discussed, we need you know a speaker in place to pass some sort of supplemental funding deal. Um, I think that how he will be assessed will depend on um, any conditions attached to that funding um, in terms of helping civilians, for example, get out of Gaza via Egypt. I know that there are negotiations happening related to that. Um, but I, I don't know um, yet how it will play out. I, I do think that it could, could become problematic if we're seeing um, a, a lot of civilian casualties in Gaza on that side as well. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of appetite to see, you know, children dying, whether they're Israeli or Palestinian in Gaza. Right. Um, I have to push back and say, I don't think you can just say we have to wait any longer to see what President Biden has done. Uh, Brian, the president, uh, did immediately say, we stand behind Israel. He sent the Sixth Fleet to Israel. He sent his Secretary of State to Israel. He has spoken with Benjamin Netanyahu on a daily basis. Um, let me ask you the same question. Uh, has the president met the test of leadership so far, do you believe? No. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I, so I think that, that there's two ways to evaluate what President Biden has done so far. One is in, in crass domestic politics terms. Is is what he's chosen to do to do in the in the best interest of the United States, his party, himself, um, and on those narrow terms, I think he's he's done well for himself, right? He, Republicans wanted to persuade people that Joe Biden was responsible for this attack in some way, maybe even helped bankroll it through policy. 
Um, and the, the way he, he has uh, come out in, on, on Israel's side in the brewing war um, and the way the Israeli government and government officials there have praised and thanked him for it have put the kibosh on that sort of propaganda effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and, and I think that it you know the the domestic politics could have gotten really ugly if that kind of narrative had been allowed to take hold. But then there's the the actual geopolitics of this and the and the lives of people in the Middle East. And in giving such a such a um, unreserved green light uh, to to Israel, he's put the United States on the side of we don't know what yet, but. Already, the uh, the Israelis have given 1.1 million residents of Gaza 24 hours to evacuate um, before presumably uh, a major bombardment campaign. The the UN has issued obvious warnings that this is not possible and would lead to humanitarian disasters. And we don't know what President Biden is doing behind the scenes. You know, maybe he's privately urging restraint. He wants to salvage. Uh, this Israeli-Saudi diplomatic process that might need to that might lead to normalization between those two countries. There are reasons he might not want Israel to lash out indiscriminately like this. But publicly, he's placed the United States, as as other liberal leaders around the world have placed their countries, foursquare behind Israel to do something that that we haven't seen yet. And and so that's why I think it's it's fair to say we don't know whether he's met, met the test of leadership because if atrocities spill out of this and the United States is linked to them, then I, I, I don't think you can count that as some sort of lasting victory for U.S. diplomacy. Uh, and by the way, it has been reported that in every conversation, I saw it again this morning, I forget exactly where, in every conversation um, that the president has had with Netanyahu, he has reminded him of the ru- rules of war, right, which is urging restraint. That's how that has been reported. That's Bill, I'm going to chime in. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go to you next and let you take it from here. How, how do you think Biden's uh, has he passed the test of leadership so far, Sabrina? So, well, one, I, I agree with Brian's assessment that there are the domestic politics and then there's a larger geopolitical conflict. But this has been the approach of President Biden. If you take a step uh, back outside of the escalating war right now uh, to convey concerns about human rights, democracy privately with his counterparts, this is, the administration has firmly stood by the notion that they, that is more effective than any public lecturing. And that was the same approach they took in the Gaza war in 2021. Now, that was obviously very different because this round of violence was precipitated by this horrific terrorist attack by Hamas. And I don't think that is in any way in dispute. But what has happened is while he has privately urged Prime Minister Netanyahu to show restraint and follow the rule of war, what he publicly it is well known and well documented that the Israeli government does not follow the rules of war and they have a history of indiscriminately bombing civilians in Gaza, of bombing hospitals, of bombing refugee camps, of bombing the only safe passage that exists uh, in the border between um, Gaza and Egypt, telling people to go to that border to try and leave and then bombing that very same passing. and this is not new. This has been the trajectory that we have seen when the violence has flared up in the region time and again. And the Biden administration knows that. Um, now, you know, the, the, and Biden has echoed, you know, what the Israeli government says 
that Hamas is using the Palestinian people as shields. They deliberately hide out in um, in places that make it harder to differentiate. Uh, but most human rights groups on the ground will tell you that Hamas is not in these hospitals that are being bombed. They are not at these refugee camps. They are not inside of these you know, entire residential buildings that are being flattened while the world is watching. Uh, you know, tw- I want to also note that the administration has not said anything about the complete siege that the Israeli government has ordered, cutting off food, water, and electricity, uh, which the government says is a condition um, that they will not lift until hostages are released. And you have not heard, privately, I'm sure the president has conveyed something, but publicly, they have allowed that to stand. So I think history is already judging this moment. Um, so there is, a, of course, an expectation that any country would respond to a terrorist attack of this magnitude. But for the United States to, I think, I think to, to watch um, as, you know, 6,000 bombs are dropped on a city within a few days and, um, you know, oh, this is a city of, where half of the residents, a million people are children. Uh, that is a question that I think this administration is very much going to have to contend with and may well be um, a big piece of the legacy of this administration as this conflict continues to play out. All right. So meanwhile, um, not only the current president, but the former president uh, has spoken out about uh, Israel. He did say uh, early on, Donald Trump uh, condemned the um, attack by Hamas on Israel. Uh, But Wednesday night in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, he took a little different tone. He was talking about how he had reached out to Israel for their help in the United States' effort to uh, assassinate, which they successfully did, the Iran general Soleimani. Uh, and then Donald Trump goes on a little rant about how weak Israel was and how they didn't respond. Here he is. I'll never forget that Bibi Netanyahu let us down. That was a very terrible thing. I will say that. But we did the job ourselves. And then uh, Bibi tried to take credit for it. That wasn't good. That didn't make me feel too good. And they have a national defense minister or somebody saying, I hope Hezbollah doesn't attack us from the north. So the following morning they attacked. They might not have been doing it, but if you listen to this jerk, you would attack from the north because he said that's our weak spot. But Hezbollah, they're very smart. Mm-hmm. All right, Amanda, there you go. Bibi Netanyahu is weak. The top uh, Israeli general is a jerk and Hezbollah is very smart. In a way, this is not surprising at all, even though it is surprising. I mean, obviously, um, Israel and U.S. relations with Israel became kind of a um, cornerstone of uh, Trump's presidency. But also, he definitely has a history of both, um, you know, praising uh, dictators. Um, So maybe uh, calling Hezbollah very smart isn't that, you know, far out in left field for him. Um, And also he has a history of throwing allies under the bus. So, you know, um, you know, supporting Israel on on the one hand and then criticizing Bibi, um, maybe not that surprised by this from the former president. But, Brian, certainly the timing, right, could not have been worse for Trump's comments. Is this what we expect for he to get back in the White House? So I actually I wrote about this for off message uh, just this morning that. Um, I heard those comments and I thought for a second, I thought it was super strange because 
he and the rest of his party had sort of been waving the bloody shirt about the Hamas attack all week, and they had been trying to pin it all on Joe Biden and present themselves as Israel's only real yeah. friend in Washington. And here comes Donald Trump at, on the attack against Netanyahu. And I thought about it for a moment. I'm like, you know what? He's mad that Netanyahu is praising Joe Biden. He wants Netanyahu to participate in this smear that Joe Biden is in some sense responsible for the Hamas attack, or at least to let that yeah. false yeah. interpretation of events go uncontested. And then Jonathan Lemire, a, a Politico reporter, actually confirmed that hypothesis. <laughs> the Trump is just just mad that 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 Netanyahu isn't playing along with mm. this with this lie essentially about Biden's uh, culpability for the for the Hamas attack. And you know that. If you, if you put it in the context of, of, of how Trump has operated in every campaign he's run, what he's really revealing is that he still expects the, the, the foreign leaders, the autocratic leaders that he was so close with while he was president to do him political favors ahead of the 2024 election um, and that he'll be upset if they don't. Um, and I think that that's something that honestly, President Biden and Democrats in the Senate ought to take seriously because he it's not just... Benjamin Netanyahu in the middle of a, a crisis that he could appeal to. He is is linked financially even to the Saudis. He he obviously has a, a, a lot of affinity for Vladimir Putin, who committed crimes in the 2016 election to help Trump win. So it's a it's an ongoing story, and I don't think that uh, just because a lot of it seems like ancient history that um, that Democrats can be confident that history won't repeat itself. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. There's also it's also been reported that Trump is pissed at Netanyahu because he immediately congratulated Joe Biden on winning the 2020 election uh, instead <laughs> of saying, uh, "Well, there's some quite you know." Instead of saying, "Maybe Donald Trump won after all," and that uh, this was maybe Trump getting back at uh, Netanyahu for that as well. So overall, Sabrina. Um, the Republican Party responds to this, as Brian put it, the waving the bloody shirt. And yet, again, we talked about this, touched on it before, uh, the House of Representatives is, is unable to do anything about sending any aid or even expressing support for Israel because they have no speaker. They're, they're shut down, basically. In the Senate, uh, Tommy Tuberville is still continuing his uh, hold on military promotions. The Senate is still blocking than uh, any ambassador to Israel, um, it puts the party not in a good shape in responding to this international crisis. Would you agree? <laughs> well, that's kind of been the approach uh, for for quite a long time, Bill. I mean, you know, I think that as we know, a lot this is bluster, right? Um, and and it's, it's it's sort of trying to create two alternate realities where you know you see how President Biden has actually responded to the terrorist attacks. Uh, in Israel, and then the Republican Party is out there tweeting, "Where's Joe Biden?" Um, you know, <laughs> one of them said, "Where is he?" Uh, literally, like maybe um, hours hours after he had given a speech about Israel that very day. Um, so, because you know that, that that's the idea, right? To just try and obfuscate and and suggest and try and suggest at least publicly, rhetorically, that the Republican Party um, is more aligned with or more supportive of of Israel. Um, and that Biden, um, again, kind of pushing the perpetuating these uh, false claims that in some way his administration through its funding for Iran is somehow culpable in these attacks. Um, you know, it's, it, the, the, the reaction also to Trump's comments reminds me of the uh, four years, six, if you count the campaign 
where, you know, some of us reporters were tasked with asking Republicans about comments that Trump had made um, or tweeted. And, you know, you'd get that. I haven't seen that tweet. I haven't heard those comments. Uh, so on the one hand, you have uh, Trump openly attacking uh, Netanyahu and Israel uh, in the in the face uh, in the wake of it, of of this terror, um, and and you're not really it's, you know it's almost it's as if it didn't happen if you ask most Republicans. Uh, so I think you know the question I think just becomes in this climate of misinformation. Um, as you actually get to an election where mo- most likely Trump is on the ballot, um, you know, how much uh, we were talking about it right now. But, you know, how when it comes to the broader public, um, how how aware will they be? Of, I, think, I think with the Republican Party, I think we've already seen uh, that, you know, they live in a silo where Trump can say and do whatever he wants. It doesn't have much impact on his standing. So. Yeah. You know, I think it, you know, I think in a general election, I think most people will see how Biden responded uh, to this moment of crisis and evaluate him uh, on his administration's response. But within the Republican primary, we've seen time again that there are that there are no rules for Trump and and, and that ship has long since sailed. Right. Uh, and by the way, uh, you mentioned a Republican primary. We should just mention, I guess, before we close, there's still a Republican primary going on, even though it seems it's been eclipsed by everything else. We haven't heard much about it lately. And on the uh, Democratic side uh, this week, um, we just don't have time to get into it, but we should mention at least Bobby Kennedy left the Democratic Party to run as an independent. For what that's worth, Cornell West left the Green Party to run as an independent, for what that's worth. And Cenk Uger, whom nobody has ever heard about, uh, is running head of the Young Turks. Uh, I've heard of him. I've been on his program. Uh, He is running as a Democrat in the primary, he says, against President Biden, as long as the Supreme Court says that he can, because he was actually born in Turkey, not in the United States. So we got a little constitutional problem there, which has to be resolved, and in my opinion, never will. Uh, not in his favor, at any rate. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, we'll get into all of that maybe at another roundtable, but now it's time for to say thank you to our panel for today. Uh, excellent take on both what's happening here on Capitol Hill at the House and what's happening in the Middle East in this war uh, between Israel and Hamas. Um, A big thank you to Sabrina Sadiq, Amanda Becker, and Brian Boitler. But before we let you go, um, regulars will know that we always ask everybody, all right, and all this stuff that was going on, everything you were carrying, what's the one story that kind of stopped you in your tracks uh, and made you at least stop and think about it, maybe cry about it? Your favorite story of the week, Amanda, please start us off. Okay. So as usual, I have a caveat in that (laughs) I couldn't narrow it down to one because there were two really good profiles out this week of Vice President Kamala Harris, um, asked Ed Herndon in the New York Times Magazine and a plot in the Atlantic. I believe it'll be in the November print issue. Um, Both were just, I've kind of been waiting for a really meaty profile of the vice president for a while now. Um, As you know, I, I, you know, kind of focus on gender and politics. So I read and write a lot about the women in in our political system. And so um, both of these uh, were really good for slightly different reasons and are both um, well worth a read. 
Uh, all right. But you know what? I haven't gotten to either one of them yet, but they are definitely on my list. And uh, you're right. You have to mention both of them because both came out this week. Yeah. Uh, certainly just wouldn't reading. be fair. <laughs> and and carve out some time, Bill, because they're both about eight or 9,000 words. So you know, there goes your Saturday afternoon. <laughs> all right. I'm ready. Now, we know that you focus on women and gender issues. We also know that in her favorite story of the week, Sabrina Siddiqui focuses on the canine world, usually. Uh, Sabrina? I'm sorry to disappoint, but I do not have a dog story this week. I am taking a slightly more serious uh, approach this week because um, a Russian court upheld the detention of our Wall Street Journal oh, colleague, yeah, yeah. Uh, Evan Grishkovich, um, denying the latest appeal by his lawyers to free him since he was uh, detained in Russia on March 29th. Uh, he's a 31-year-old U.S. citizen. Russia is holding him on allegation of espionage that, to be clear, the Wall Street Journal denies. He denies. The U.S. government has said that he's is not a spy. He has never worked for the government. And uh, we always want to just try and uh, draw attention to his case. Um, the fact that he is still being held uh, simply for doing his job. Um, I would encourage everyone to to you know read about Evan Gershkovich, to read all the uh, incredible work he was doing um, reporting on the ground from Russia. I, I think we all agree that journalism is not a crime, and we just hope that he is able to somehow uh, come home soon. Uh, thank you for mentioning that. And um, it, it's. I just hope the Biden administration is doing everything they can to uh, secure his release uh, as well. It's just a, an outrage. Uh, Brian Boitler, um, <laughs> new, to the, uh, new to the panel, but you must have had a favorite story of the week. Yeah, I'm going to go in a more frivolous direction um, and one that maybe dovetails with Amanda's interest in gender politics and also calls back to Nancy Mace, who we discussed earlier. Um, And she uh, was seen on on Capitol Hill earlier this week um, wearing uh, a scarlet letter, the red letter A um, on her on her sweater. And she said that um, she was wearing it. Uh, quote, after the week that I just had being a woman up here and being demonized for my vote and for my voice. And she's referring to the the backlash she faced for being one of the eight Republicans who helped oust um, Kevin McCarthy and her Republican colleagues haven't taken kindly to um, any of the members who who put them in this position. Um, but as a, a many of the people covering Mace pointed out, um, that's not why she faced disapproval. Um, and that's not what the Scarlet Letter is about. <laughs> right. um, and I guess I'll just leave it at that. Somebody wondered if she'd ever read, actually, the Scarlet Letter, right? That uh, it does stand for adultery. But at any rate, uh, good, <laughs> good point. That was a funny moment th- this week. Uh, and I have to say, my favorite story, too, I feel a little badly about this, but not a lot. And <laughs> I took such glee not in a print story, but in a video. And I hope all of you saw it. Uh, And the context is that last July, the Senator Tommy Tuberville, the coach from Alabama, said about Joe Biden, quote, "Uh, you watch Joe Biden over in Europe. I mean, I'm afraid he's going to fall down every time I turn on the television. Uh, oops, this week <laughs> it was Tommy Tuberville, if you saw the video, walking down the steps, trying to walk down the steps uh, from uh, 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 an airplane. Uh, he took three steps and then he tumbled. He cascaded 
all the way down the steps on full in full view of the television cameras. Uh, of course, social media it was, it's been <laughs> uh, it went viral, as they say, millions and millions of views. Uh, someone called him now Tommy Tumber, Tumbleville. Uh, someone else tweeted out that Queen Karma paid Tommy a visit. Uh, whatever, it's, I just sort of felt um, it served him right after making that comment. He was not, he was not hurt. He was not harmed. So all, all ended well, except for his monumental embarrassment. Well-deserved. Uh, if you haven't seen a video yet, we're going to post the video as part of the episode notes to today's podcast. And I must admit, I've watched it probably a dozen times. And I laugh out loud every time I do. And I'm sure you will. You will, too. Uh, and that's it for today's uh, for Reporters Roundtable. Again, a great big thank you to today's panel. Brian Boitler, good to have you here, Brian. We'll hope to get you back uh, and encourage everybody to check out Off Message, Off Message, a new uh, newsletter. You can easily sign up, um, uh, either as a free subscriber or a paid subscriber, which, of course, Brian would prefer. Uh, Amanda Becker back with us from 19th News thanks Amanda and Sabrina Siddiqui from the Wall Street Journal thank you Sabrina and thank you all for listening hope you have a great weekend and then remind you come back on Tuesday Uh, looking forward to this on Tuesday we're going to be talking on the next podcast with Dick Gephardt longtime Democratic member of the House longtime Democratic leader uh, of the House never speaker but House Majority Leader and now heading an organization called Citizens to Save Our Republic, which is out warning about the possible impact, negative impact, uh, they believe, of the No Labels Group. Dick Gephardt joining us next Tuesday. Again, have a great weekend. We'll see you Tuesday with Dick Gephardt on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.